Hello, hello everybody. So welcome to episode 31 of Tetarik with Wallet season 4. Uh, and I am glad to be back after a, I believe 3 month or 2 and a half months hiatus. And hmm, what has happened in the past 3 months? Pretty uneventful time in Singapore politics. <laughs> But I'm sure we'll get uh we'll get to um whatever has happened in the past three months over the season of Tetarik with Walid. Uh, but today we will be having a former nominated member of parliament, Associate Professor Walter Tessera. So I am I am pretty happy to have him on. Uh, hi everyone, hi everyone. So I am happy he is uh, a former nominated member of parliament as I said and I would say he's one of the more consequential ones and I I would put him right up there uh, together with uh, Anthea, uh, Quick Xiaoyin, you know, uh, and and others. I mean, uh, Joshua as well. I I mean, my friend. And I mean, coincidentally, of course, I like all those NMPs who have come on Tetari Wallet before. But anyway, so uh, Professor Tessera, can you send me an invite or... Okay, it's okay. I'll send you. So, we can start. Meanwhile, if you guys have any questions or comments, uh, please type them in. Type them uh, and we can... <laughs> oh, hello. Hi, that was fast. Hey, hi, hi. Um, hello, hello. Yeah, How are you? First time I'm doing this, so I think... Yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you. You had, uh, you created an Instagram account just for this session, so I am... Uh-huh. That's yeah, right. yeah, I am... I am really thankful for that. But anyway, it's about time, you know. Facebook is for boomers, so... <laughs> yeah, I'm a boomer. <laughs> okay, okay. So this is where all the young people are. Thank you so much, Prof. Sarah. I'm really happy to to have you. Uh, how are you? How huh? have you? What have you been up to, actually? Huh? Since you... <laughs> since you are, you are no longer in the public eye, what can you update everyone what you've been doing? Huh? I, I, I don't think I'm doing matters a lot since I don't do anything public like these days. I mean, um, I've just been teaching at uh, university, trying to get some research done. That kind of thing, like, basically. Okay. Yeah, so basically, know, normal. Right. I mean, except for people right. like yourself, for example, you try to do uh, public things. But most of us are boring. <laughs> like, right, 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 right. So most of the daily work of an academic is pretty boring and straightforward, mm. right? Yeah. So, uh, uh, Professor Tessera. Yeah, I mean, it's fun for us. It's... <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, fun for, yeah. for other people. For yeah, it's boring to other That one is a matter of interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, Professor Tessera, of course, is at the uh, Economics Department in SUSS, the Singapore yeah. University of Social Sciences. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's start with, I would say, I mean, it's rare to have NMPs who come up with big ideas, right? When actually, I think NMPs in a way they are best positioned to really push for the big ideas and the philosophies, right? I mean, I, I'm not saying you are the first, but I think there were only a few people who, I think NMPs have really pushed for big ideas. And one of uh, your big ideas, I think, was UBI, which is a huge one, right? In the context of Singapore, universal basic income. This is similar to what uh, Andrew Yang uh, has uh, proposed in the States. I mean, he's not the first. Even I think Martin Luther King uh, Jr. did as well. He he talked about something similar. So, can you explain what it is first before we get to the other stuff? What what is your idea of uh, UBI in Singapore? 
Yeah, okay. Um, so, you know, um, what a lot of people think of when you hear the word UBI, it means universal basic income. And so what they think uh, UBI is all about is basically giving people uh, money so that people don't need to do anything. I mean, that, that's the impression a lot of people have. And of course, you know, uh, people have got understandable concerns that if society were to do that for everybody, then people would stop working. And then the question would become then, how is society going to create the resources to actually keep things going, right? Uh, but, but I want to unpack this a bit and, and maybe explain a bit about how um, economists and other social scientists have been looking at UBI and, and what purpose they've really been serving, uh, not just as a thought experiment, but also in the countries and, and places which have actually already started to implement versions of, of UBI, okay? So, so, you know, broadly speaking, what's the purpose of a UBI scheme or a policy like UBI? And what I want to do here is um, I want to separate what you might call the value judgment, which is, okay, why do I help the less advantaged? Why do I want to improve the security that people have for, you know, like healthcare, livelihoods, food, that kind of thing, right? So, so let's, let's, um, let's assume for the moment uh, that as a society, you already decided that it would be a good thing to prevent people from starving to death and making sure they've got a safety net and things like that. Okay, let's, let's suppose you already decided Same, that. Seems like a fair assumption, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so then I think you, you have a practical question. The practical question is, if you want to protect uh, the more vulnerable members of society, what is the best way of doing it? Uh, and I think the reason why UBI schemes have a lot of interest among policymakers and academics is, you know, conditional on you wanting to help people, UBI might be a good way to improve on the existing way uh, that we address problems like poverty, uh, insecurity, you know, vulnerability, and so on. And the reason is um, most of the ways that we tackle these problems today have a lot of gaps. People fall through a lot of gaps. Uh, what do I mean by that? If you think about the typical policies we have, not just in Singapore, but globally, policies are often contingent. Uh, that means that uh, the policy waits for a bad thing to happen to you, okay? Mm. So you've got to have something bad happen, like you lose your job or somebody gets really sick or whatever it is. Okay, fine. Then uh, the policy will help you. But not only is it contingent, the policies are means-tested usually, right? Uh, meaning we want people to apply for it. They've got to fill in an application or something. Uh, and they've got to prove that they cannot help themselves. That, that's a typical feature in many of these policies worldwide. And finally, the policies, especially in Singapore, tend to be very fragmented, uh, meaning that when we see one problem, you know, like the problem is, okay, uh, people don't have enough money to go and buy groceries. Then we fix it. We say, okay, I'm going to give you grocery vouchers. If the problem is they don't have enough money to, let's say, go to the dentist, then we say, okay, look, I give you dental vouchers. But you get the point, right? I mean, every time right, right. see a problem, we say, okay, I'm going to fix this by giving you something for this specific problem. The scheme for every matter. Uh, what the UBI scheme is trying to do as a matter of policy is to cut through this kind of mess by replacing as many schemes as possible with the basic idea that the real problem people have is they don't have the resource, the economic resources. You don't have the money, right? And if you can fix the money issue, actually a lot of other things don't become a serious problem, right? If you have the money, you don't have to worry how to eat, how to go to the dentist, you know, basic uh, kinds of needs like this. You don't have to worry so much about that. So, so that's the idea behind um, why UBI schemes are, are proposed. It's because they are thought to be possibly a more efficient way of uh, dealing with social inequities and ills. And if they're more efficient, not only will they save, I think, the government money in terms of administration, and taxpayers, obviously, uh, but they might 
result in more tangible benefits or outcome for people. You know, like if you're spending one hour less uh, a day figuring out how to apply for an aid scheme, maybe there's right. one hour you can spend on your kids or uh, trying to find a job and things like that. So, so that's part of the idea behind that. Lah. Yeah. Right. Mm. Okay. So it would basically work something like this, right? Everybody gets $1,000 a month or something, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so it wasn't yeah. for such a large amount. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? But, yeah. So, so the idea I had was, I think, uh, something like about $110 per person yeah. Uh, yeah. per week, I think. And the reason for right. that, it, it was based on, I think, looking at the household expenditure survey data. Right. And we were trying to calibrate it. So this uh, was worked on by myself and uh, Dr. Ong Chien, who uh, was at the social service, uh, well, is at the social service research center at NUS. And the amount comes from studying the expenditure data in Singapore, and it's calibrated at the amount, at the amount that I think um, lower to middle kind of family would be um, spending on cash necessities. You know, so things like um, groceries, um, going to a hawker center, uh, your internet, yeah. loss, so things like that. Right. So, yeah. so your proposal, the, so it's 440 a month, right? So, yeah, per person. So it was, uh, your proposal, if I remember correctly, it was temporary, right? It's not mm. meant to be permanent. Yeah. So why, if, if your idea mm. is, is yeah. so good, why should it only be temporary? Why should it not be permanent? Mm-mm-mm. Because yeah. outside of COVID, people do right. have financial problems. Right. There's inequality mm. and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think when, when we came up with the idea, um, so first, I think in the context of it was that I think in general, you know, universal basic income schemes are still considered fairly radical. But I right. thought um, the situation we were facing at the onset of the COVID crisis was that um, we really didn't know how bad it was going to be at that point in time. I mean, today, of course, maybe may it's a bit hard to remember how things were like, uh, I think, close to two years before, right? <laughs> yeah. so in the early days of the crisis, remember, most of us didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, many of us thought that if you were to contract COVID, it was, it was a death sentence. Okay? I mean, that's, that's how many people thought about it uh, two years ago. Uh, and, and people were losing their jobs, their travel was shutting down. So there's a lot of uncertainty, right? And, and even though we had a lot of people who might still have their jobs on paper, uh, we knew that the employers were cutting their allowances, were reducing their hours. Uh, the bosses were telling them, look, uh, if I pay you this month, company goes out of business. Uh, you know, I don't pay you this month, maybe I can pay you next month. So, so these kinds of things were happening to people, right? Uh, and, and so we thought that um, rather than have people apply for aid schemes and help and so on, if you could guarantee that people would have some money uh, in their pockets, then that could go a long way towards relieving this kind of stress and uncertainty people had. Um, but so there are a couple of features of it, though, which, which uh, you know, relate to the question about why is it temporary. Right. First, that such a scheme actually is not cheap, right? I mean, if you don't want to uh, spend from the reserves, uh, one way you can make the scheme um, more financially sustainable if you can actually raise taxes to cover it, to, to pay for it. And I remember we calculated you would need a couple of percentage points increase in income taxes to pay for it. Uh, the other feature that we had, I think, was that um, we would also make it, um, you know, a, a universal scheme. So it pays out automatically, but um, it's counted as income tax. I mean, it's counted as uh, taxable income, which meant that for people right. uh, who would be, um, people who would, um, not need the money. People, you know, whose jobs are doing fine and, right. you know, uh, and so on. Uh, what, 
would end up happening is they would be net payers with the program. They might get the right. money up front, uh, but the next year when they file their income tax, because of the tax increase and other factors, they'd be you know basically paying back all of the money they got and, and more as well. And that's why we made it temporary because even just doing it for a few months, uh, I think as we had originally planned, it would require, yeah, I can't remember the numbers offhand, but it would require um, a noticeable increase in income taxes for many people. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, there's no sense, I think, in uh, saying that you want to do this permanently when people are more likely to feel that it's something they could consider for COVID-19, but not necessarily something they're, they're, come, they're, they're going to come and board from permanently, right? But right, of course, right. um, broader scheme of things is uh, if, it, if you get it in temporarily, and if it has a meaningful impact, uh, meaning that the recipients, the rest of society feel that this is actually a better way of dealing with some of our social challenges than uh, the current system, then there might be you know, room to consider whether you want to make that um, a more permanent feature. Lah. Then, of course, you right. can talk about celebration is one better, but, but that's the thing, right? I mean, there's no need to propose that you do it permanently. And in fact, the way a lot right. of uh, policymakers, academics have approached universal basic income in other countries is to put in demonstration schemes and to see how and, and whether it works. Uh, and if it does, then you can argue about whether you want to make it more permanent. Yeah. Right. So the, the idea to make it temporary is more about to get people's buy-in rather than any economic uh, disadvantages uh, to it, you think? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think politically yeah. speaking, it's much yeah. more to, right. to, yeah, but, but not just, you know, politically speaking, it's also because it's a matter of, um, I think, um, economic or social policy. I think we should be aware that uh, it's quite difficult to predict uh, with any degree of certainty right, right, right. what the effects of any policy are going to be, yeah, right? In the real world, yeah, yeah. yeah. You put it in, you don't, expect, you don't know for sure it's going to happen. Yeah, 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 think, yeah. It's better to have some humility and see what happens first. Like. <laughs> right, right, okay. The, the, the taxable income thing, I think, is, is, uh, is a really good point that is often lost in the debates, right? And there's, there's a question here by Angie. Uh, said that, uh, she said that, she asked, do you think that unconditional UBI can be implemented? And... Mm. One of the main criticisms against Andrew Yang is that, oh, why are we giving the rich money, mm -hmm. right? And his, uh, his explanation, I don't know what, uh, what you feel about it, is that the moment you start saying that only people below a certain income can get it, right? You're not going to get the buy-in from people who actually would be net payers of the, uh, yeah. of the scheme. So the moment you do that, Universal, everybody gets it. In the end, it's still a progressive tax somehow, right? If, yeah. if, uh, if you uh, calculate overall. Do you think that's that sound and that's similar to your own reasoning as well? Yeah, so, so I, maybe let me un unpack this question of whether one should have uh, some kind of uh, conditional condition in the payout in, in the first yeah. instance. Because I think whether you have a condition in the payout or not, or whether you, you, you tax the UBI it, itself or not, in the end, as you pointed out, uh, richer taxpayers will end up paying for it, right? right. Whether you have taxes or not, that's, that's, how, that's how they would uh, fund it. Um, so I think uh, one of the challenges, so this is a policy uh, question. Um, the advantage of putting in some kind of condition on the payout initially is that, uh, is that maybe you reduce the overall expenditure need um, in the first instance, right? So you, you can basically uh, reduce the budget that you need to allocate for the program if you put in a, a cap in the first instance. Um, the problem, I think, of the cap in the first instance is that if your idea behind universal basic income or was to give people um, a cushion, a safety net, whatever you want to call it, that, um, that they could rely on 
in the sense that they knew that if something happened to them or their family and they weren't sure where they could go for help, at least they'd have this money coming in without them having to apply or ask any questions, right? So the moment you've got a conditional kind of scheme, you don't have that feature. Um, and that's because a lot of these conditional schemes, the way that they would figure out whether you should or shouldn't get the payment in the first instance is they would look at your last drawn salary or, or the records they have of your salary. Right. And, um, you know, COVID-19, there were people who had a lot of difficulty getting help because when they went to um, the authorities for help, you know, the authorities might say, but, you know, according to our record, you earn this much money last year. And they would say, yeah, yeah but it's got retrenched. You know what you want me to do? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right? So right. The, the, these kinds of issues uh, would be areas where even if you have a conditional kind of scheme, you have, a, you have to deal with a lot of... Um, complaints or appeals from people are because of issues like that yeah right yeah so and i think what what you mentioned is so is so true right and people underestimate or maybe because not many people have gone through this but people who have gone through this would know right there is an impact that poverty or a, a, a lack of money right does to your own dignity and your self-confidence your emotional and mental well-being even if it's temporary right I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of issues that come with that, and I think the the temporary UBI at least during COVID, I think it made a lot of sense. So why didn't it get passed? You think? I said, why wasn't that eventually? <laughs> well, I mean, the obvious <laughs> is, that, is that the government already had quite a comprehensive set of um, policies that they had in place to alleviate the financial the social impact of COVID. And they didn't see that their policies had anything substantially wrong with them. I mean, you know, they were fairly confident that uh, their policies would, would, you know, would achieve the effect of cushioning the impact of COVID on the population. And I think I also want to, want to say at this point that um, some of the policies the government implemented uh, were actually quite unprecedented in the sense that they ended up giving quite a lot of income, uh, you know, income support to people um, without really asking too many questions. Um, so, so I think the best example of this uh, would, would actually be the self-employment uh, relief scheme. That's the one that, you know, uh, basically uh, gave people automatic payouts as long as yeah. they were point Singaporean and they had some yeah. records of their income being within a certain range. Right? Yeah. And again, that, that, that is an automatic payout, more or less. There, there, of course, right, there right. are the gaps, but to me, it was very important and innovative and satisfied many of the criteria of a so-called universal basic income scheme because it was based on the recognition that for many of the self-employed, you know, thinking taxi drivers, hawkers, this kind of thing, right? right. Um, they would have sudden drops in income because of COVID and how are they going to prove to you, you know, like, I mean, right. nobody's taking your taxi or whatever. It's just yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, I yeah, think yeah. it's a good policy. La. So, yeah, in fact, yeah. in fact, on that scheme, I remember one of the early criticisms was, oh, this can be taken advantage of. I mean, was yeah. the other one. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you're right. I think that, that, that proves your point. So, final one on this, right? So, this seems to be, this is a philosophical difference, right? Be, those who are pro UBI versus those who are not pro UBI, right? So, does this philosophy of yours uh, extend to healthcare, for instance, or do you think every sector is different? No, no. Okay, so so I think uh, I guess there are two issues I, I would think about. One is philosophy, right? And and you know, philosophy would would to me to me would be questions about um, how how far do you want to tilt the system, for example, towards uh, individual self-responsibility versus societal responsibility and, and insurance, right? So that's one right. philosophy. But I think, um, at least for me as an economist, and I think for a lot of uh, social scientists, we also are interested in uh, questions of um, 
practical effects or outcomes. And, and this relates to the discussion we were having earlier about what the effects of poverty are on people or insecurity. And, you know, some of those effects are uh, quite counterproductive uh, to to the goal of actually improving um, everybody's welfare in the sense that if you've got somebody who's uh, poor and you don't do anything about it in society, right, then they dig themselves into a deeper hole, not, not just for themselves, but also for the next generation. And this is research that, that uh, for example, myself, Chien, uh, Ong Chien and Irene Ng have worked on. Yeah. We show that, you know, um, that the presence of uh, large amounts of debt for Singaporean households actually reduces their uh, cognitive functioning and increases their Absolutely. stress levels considerably, which make it hard for you to get out of that hole, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so when we talk about the practical effects, then the question I think for us would be, if I design policy this way instead of another way, for example, if I make the policy uh, give people more automatic support, reduce out-of-pocket payments and so on, do I get more practical effect, right? So in the case of healthcare, um, um, the, 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 the tension, the trade-off is, uh, the thinking behind our current system, right, is that uh, if we make sure that people have some kind of co-payment and we don't try to aggressively subsidize people without first testing their wealth, means, and so on, then we reduce the amount of money we overall need to spend on subsidizing system. And we also encourage people to take better care of their own health so that they don't have to pay out of pocket so much. I mean, that's the thinking behind it, right? But you can also contrast that against the view of a more like, you know, let's say universal payer or government paid healthcare system where the thinking is, if I make healthcare free at the point of access, then people don't worry about whether they can, they need to uh, cut something else to pay for the health and therefore they don't let health problems fester until they become more expensive to treat right. people. Right, right, uh, right. They don't have the stress building up about it, thinking about how I'm going to save money for my operation or whatever. Right. You know, basically, so it's a trade-off, right? Which one ends up causing more cost to the system and more problem for healthcare? That is actually, to, to me, an empirical question. It's not something you right. can determine the answer to just by uh, moralizing right. about it, basically. Right, right, yeah. right, 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 right. Uh, but, okay. but my personal view, my personal view is that I think uh, the system needs to be balanced more towards, uh, I think, uh, greater social, I mean, greater, you might say, um, social payment, right? In other words, less individual responsibility, more, I think, uh, government or taxpayer payment. Like that. That's my personal view on that. And because, your personal view yeah. is based on a, on the it's philosophy because, or the empirical No, I think, I think it's because there's a, I mean, there's a lot of research, I think, uh, that right. suggests, uh, you know, that, that basically suggests that um, a healthcare system with fragmented individual payment, you don't, um, my view or my reading of uh, the research on this would be that the amount of money that you save, for example, um, due to individual responsibility, due to people uh, not having so much moral hazard in accessing healthcare, is, may not be as much as the amount of uh, money or resources you would save from people actually getting adequate care, you know, without having to worry about payments and things like that. But, but to be quite frank, like, you know, the literature can be read, I think, in many ways in this topic. It depends on which papers you want to believe in more and right. so on. I mean, because right. it's an academic topic, of course, you, you can always uh, <laughs> wrong argument one way or the other. Like, out there, okay? but, but that's my personal, yeah. Right, right. Okay, okay. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, so I think anecdotally also, I've, I've heard quite a few people who say, uh, that they do not want to find out what diseases they have because they are afraid that they cannot pay pay for it. You know, so I've I've heard these these sorts of arguments before. But thank you. That was really an education in economics uh, from you. Uh, so I really appreciate that. So let's uh, switch gears a little, right? I mean, you are 
you were an NMP and I mean, uh, would you agree with me if I said that the NMP is uh, in essence an undemocratic scheme or in theory an undemocratic scheme, an elitist scheme, uh, but it can be beneficial for democracy, I think. So what is your personal opinion? Do you think uh, uh, there is a boon or a bane for democracy, the scheme? Yeah. Mm. Okay, I think I'm going to give a very long answer to this. Okay, letter. please do. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I think the way I think about this is, let, let's start by unpacking, I think, what, what we mean by our understanding of democracy, right? And I think the criticism there, I think, is, is very valid, right? Uh, it's basically, why should we have an unelected MP have any kind of say in public affairs? And of course, we, we reject that idea because to us, to many of us, it breaks the notion I think we have of a representative democracy. But then, but then you see, that, that's the issue, right? Uh, then we accept that our current understanding of a democracy in Singapore and many countries is representative. In other words, we believe that we should have some kind of parliament or legislature. We elect people to represent us in there. And those guys we elect, uh, men and women, uh, then they, they decide what the country should be doing. Okay, but um, I think if we, if we think about this problem a bit further, we realize that this notion that democracy is about electing people who reflect our will and then for our will to be reflected um, nationally by the contest of wills. In other words, the more people want something, then that's what the country is going to get. That's where we're going to go. That notion actually itself is also not democratic. Okay? Uh, the reason why, right. why it's not, not democratic is that if we think about what actually makes democratic societies good places to be and live in, most or all, I think, democratic societies actually have plenty of institutions which are, in fact, profoundly undemocratic in the sense that they've got nothing to do about reflecting the will of the people. But we create and put those institutions in place because we think that in the long run, they actually safeguard the interests of democracy. And the example I want Such to give is not yeah, the yeah, yeah. system. It's actually the judiciary, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, I was why why do we have judiciary. that? I mean, yeah, 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 we exactly. have a legal system. We have a judici judiciary because... Uh, we want it to be independent. We want right. judges and juries to decide matters without reference to public opinion. I mean, of right. course, we, we want them to know what the public is thinking, right? Because right. Uh, obviously, you know, you, you want people to reflect the fact that if many people think a crime is heinous, then obviously, you know, um, right. it attracts severe, severe sanction. But that's not the same thing as saying that the judge or the jury should literally ask the people, hey, what do you think? And then go right. and decide your case according right. to... Right? So it's, it's, it's meant to be an elitist institution precisely because that is how it's going to protect Safeguard That's democracy, how I think it protects right? yeah. the, the broader yeah, democratic yeah, yeah, ideals yeah, 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 that, that yeah, you know, yeah. people deserve to be treated according, equally according right. to the law and that they have you know, basically a fair, uh, they have a fair trial. And so, I mean, even when you're a jury system, right? I mean, of course, you know, then you have to yeah. debate about judge or jury. But even in the jury system, the jury is not meant to literally reflect the public opinion. Right. They're actually just meant to sit as judges, as lay judges, essentially. But they are really not meant to go and ask their friends, what do you think? I mean, that's not right. what juries do at all. So, yeah, so, so, so that's an institution which is not democratic in the sense of being representative of democracy or reflecting uh, popular will, but it's something we put in place because we think it improves the quality of our governance, right? And constitutions are, are, are the same. So, uh, coming back to this very long um, story. No, no, it's a fair yeah, analogy, I to, think. To yeah. NMPs, it's the same issue, right? NMPs are unelected. Yeah, in that sense, they're not democratic. But if the institution can somehow 
uh, improve or, or be in service to the broader objectives of a democratic society, then I think that's useful. Uh, and I think for, for NFPs in particular, one area which I felt that they have been maybe useful in in Singapore is that there are views um, that are hard to reflect, I think, in the public discourse in Singapore, la, you, especially in Parliament. Uh, and, you know, th these would be, for example, social views or views from segments of society, which at the moment we do not see fit to attempt to represent, you see? So, so one obvious example would be, I think, the views of uh, the LGBTQ uh, plus I uh, minority in Singapore, okay? So they exist. Uh, they could be a substantial minority of the population, but in our current democratic process, we do not see any, at least Parliament sees no need to specially cater to represent their views. And uh, frankly, a lot of elected MPs um, have a lot of caution about representing their views because of the right. fear uh, that uh, more conservative voters might vote against them for even just bringing up the views of this right. population. But right. NMPs uh, hopefully don't worry about this kind of thing, right? Although I have to say, uh, in this topic, uh, when I have brought up such views on occasion, I actually did get emails from people. Okay, very oh. angry emails and sometimes from, from, from uh, more conservative people asking me uh, right. why I did those things. Uh. So, so it's not right. as if I, I don't get public backlash, but right. I don't have to worry about keeping my job. Exactly, right? that's, that's so, what so, I wanted to say, right? You don't have to worry about the mm -hmm. next election, right? So, mm -hmm. so, uh, just just on this issue, right, section three seven seven A. In fact, it's very rare to see politicians yeah. take a stand either way, right? They will they will yeah. try to make their politician uh, their views as murky as as yeah. middle ground as possible, not to offend either side, right? So mm. so I agree with you actually. NMPs are perhaps best positioned to propose repeal, right? But why why hasn't that mm -hmm. happened since since okay. Siu Kam Hong, yeah? Yeah, so, so just give you my, my own take on this. Um, you're right that NMPs could, um, they, they could actually table a, uh, yeah, they table an, a bill, a private member's bill to repeal 377A or, you know, any other kinds of legislation like this, which might be viewed as uh, problematic, discriminatory, and so on. Uh, and if there were enough um, NMPs uh, to support the motion to bring it to a debate, then the question would actually be put to the House and the House would have to vote on it. But I'll tell you what, what the issue is that, that, um, that I at least you know, thought about and struggled with, right? I mean, I think the first thing I want to point out is that this idea that you can, in fact, um, put, um, I guess, a private member's bill up for a piece of, to, to change a piece of legislation that might have real impact on lots of people, that isn't something that I think a lot of NMPs are aware of or even a lot of backbenchers, I think, are aware of or really consider very seriously, right? Uh, because in our parliamentary system, which is similar to many other uh, Westminster systems, uh, individual MPs have very little power, actually. They have a lot of power right. on paper, but in practice, right. uh, they, they don't tend to, you know, do these kinds of things because um, it's not what their political parties, for example, tend to support in any case. So that's the first thing, <laughs> lack of awareness of how this actually works, you see? Uh, but I think the second thing for, for me in thinking about this was... Um, I personally did not think that it would do anybody any good if such a debate were brought uh, into the House without a very strong sense that, um, I mean, because personally I'm, I'm for repeal, right? So I wouldn't see there's any point in bringing it to the House unless I was very certain that it would win resoundingly, you know, right. uh, and not only win resoundingly in the House, but also win resoundingly in the public. And in right. the public means that 
uh, the public at the end of the day would have to be majority convinced that this is the right thing for Singapore. Because if you, if you don't win uh, or, or you have a very narrow victory, what do you get? You, you might right. change the law, but you're not going to change anybody's minds. And there are going to be a lot of Singaporeans, a lot of conservative Singaporeans who will believe right. that the democratic system has been hijacked in favor of minority, okay? Right, and, they right, right. That. and if they believe that, then they're not going to treat this minority any better, okay? So how does that help people? I mean, sure, I, I appreciate that it helps, uh, for example, LGBTQI plus minority because they, then they don't fear being arrested or anything like that anymore. I understand that. But in the rest of their daily life, it's not going to help them very much, you see. That's the problem. Right. Mm. Right, right, right. So I mean, yeah. I mean, we didn't plan to speak about this at all, but now we have. Yeah. But it's it's an interesting tangent, and when when you raise that, right, mm. that's a very, very pragmatic view of uh, of how. I mean, you personally feel it should be repealed. However, you feel that whether we like it or not, majority opinion does matter. Right? I mean, obviously, I have no standing to speak on on this, right? But uh, I can speak, for instance, on the on the Chinese privilege argument, for instance, right? For, for, for me, like, uh, I, you know, I'm, I was one of those who, not, not, not the initial ones, but later mm. on, I propagated the idea as well, right? And then some people say, right, oh, so what if others don't believe that there is Chinese privilege, right? Why does it matter as long as it's the truth? Well, why it matters is because we are sharing the society with them, right? Mm. So whether we like it or not, it matters what other people think, even if it's diametrically opposed to what we believe as well, right? Uh, so so yeah, I think when when you when you said that, I mean it 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 does uh, resonate uh, with me as well. So how do you balance that then? How do you balance the uh, your own principles versus uh, pragmatic uh, political considerations, right? Because as an academic, it's very easy for me. I don't have to balance that, right? But as an NMP, can you, how do you balance? No, I, that? I think for really for for that issue, I I think. Um, by the time I, I realized, maybe I, you know, some others realized that it might be possible to bring it to a debate and think about it. We also realized we just didn't have the time at that, that point in time to actually get it done properly, right? Because if, if I noted, I think if you wanted to do that, you'd have to first um, talk to other MPs to see what is it that they're thinking. Although, I mean, I, I know in this case, most of them would think, well, you know, um, Whatever I think personally, I'm not going to stick my neck out for this kind of thing, right? So that's what a lot of them would be thinking. Right, right, right. right. Uh, and, and, yeah, but, yeah. but apart from that, then, it's about going to the public. It's about putting the reason for talking about this at this point in time to the public and, you know, trying to get a sense of uh, is it possible to get enough uh, public support on your side uh, such that uh, people are ready to repeal it. And for people who are not so ready and very unhappy of it, can they be at least convinced that, on net, this isn't going to be horrible for Singapore because right, a lot right, of people right, right. Who genuinely believe that uh, such a repeal would on net be terrible for Singapore, right? Yeah, 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 they're yeah. entitled to that view, but right. I think at least if you can try to uh, shape that view or change it or adjust it a bit, I mean, that would be helpful because, you know, yeah, yeah. So, so I think that that's the issue, but I think such a movement would have taken a very long time and a lot of effort and yeah, by the time we had thought about, uh, or at least I had thought about it, it was clear that that would be just impossible in that term, uh, the remaining term. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so much. That was another uh, comprehensive answer, right? So we, we are 35 minutes in already. I thought this season, I just wanted to limit it to 40 minutes, but Oops. it's not going to happen. Don't worry. It's okay. It's, that, that means it's a good thing. So so we'll try to target hopefully 50 minutes. Uh, so so now we it's we are about, what, one and a half years away from the general or since the general election. Do you think 
what what has changed right and i say this in a broader sense because there is a cop uh, going on and the report is not out so i really do not want uh, uh any particular comments you know it could be contempt of parliament we also don't want to be seen to be exerting any pressure on on the cop so but ju- just from a general sense what do you think do you have any comments about the political scene about processes and so on hmm Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, so maybe I talk a bit about the general political scene first, and we we can circle back to some more recent events if we want, lah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, honestly, uh, I I I think for for my own fantasy, lah, I, I try not to follow uh, the full nitty gritty of all politics too closely. Of course, I mean I I pay attention to what happens in Parliament. I read uh you know the news reports on it. Uh, but I I I. Definitely don't uh, live stream Parliament every time we're in session, lah. Because uh, I think having sat in there for for almost two years, I kind of know how it goes, and I also kind of know that um, usually that the best bits actually do get reported on. Or, or right. One so, way or another, let me be so. So not everything is equally important, basically, right? So. Well, I mean, we would like to think it's all important, lah. But you know, yeah. So, but but, right. but my general sense on, on politics uh, since the last general election, right? I I think um. You know, I, I think on the one hand, uh, people have talked about how uh, the role and the presence of the opposition in Singapore has become a bit more entrenched uh, due to more gains, electoral gains that have been made, and also, of course, uh, you know, uh, appointing, uh, you know, Mr. Pritam Singh as the leader of the opposition. So I think these are some uh, steps towards uh, maybe a more robust parliamentary democracy. But at the same time. Uh, I find that for me, many of the institutions which I consider indispensable to, I, I think, um, you know, a, a well-ordered uh, democracy, you might say, uh, I think a lot more could be done there, lah. So, so what I mean here is, I think by by further normalizing uh, and recognizing the, the presence and role of civil society in Singapore as, you know, stakeholders uh, who, who have a place in political and social debates. I mean, I think more could be done there. Um, having, uh, you know, like a stronger and more diverse independent media. And by independent media, I also don't mean all the WhatsApp messages I get from uh, the People's Republic China or, or whatever it is. Okay, that's not really <laughs> right, right, yeah, right, right. independent media, but it's not really what I'm right, thinking right. of here. Right. I mean, I think, you know, there could be more developments here. Uh, but, you know, it's just about the institutions, right? Because I think, uh, my, my, my belief is we will not get uh, closer, I think, to what some of us want in terms of, um, you know, uh, uh, higher quality, more democratic, more re- responsive um, government and social and political process in Singapore, purely just from electing opposition members alone. I don't think we're going to get that just from that alone. Um, I think we need a lot more strength in our institutions. But here, I think we also have to recognize uh, that because of the concerns that many people have about being associated with these institutions, pushing on them, especially in areas where uh, doing so might be seen to be opposing the government, it's very hard to build, I think, strength in this area. Right. I think, you know, some good points are first, I think, for environmental institutions. I think, uh, by and large, they have somehow become, uh, quote-unquote, legitimized over the past couple of years. I yeah. mean, that's to me, very clear. Lah. Basically, yeah. uh, government, I think, has tried to co op them. As well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Them, but I think yeah. they have emerged as, I think, uh, quite an interesting and important, I think, um, you know, like a civil society force. So I think it's just a question about are there... Are there More groups which can build on that, lah. Uh, you know, along those lines. Yeah. But the 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 environment, I guess, mm. I, I agree with you. It's a thriving area of civil society. But that's also because the issue is not super threatening to 
the government's legitimacy, right? So, which is why they allow for a burgeoning mm. of, of. Uh, so, I guess it won't be equal in because civil society is not a monolith, right? Like there'll be some issues which are more OB marker ish yeah. <laughs> than others, or nearer to OB markers than others, right? So, so yeah, so so basically your. Uh, your main maybe gripe is too strong a word, but your your hope is that civil society in particular will be strengthened. Civil society, uh, right. media, you know, um, right. academia as well, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they I, all, I, all of us try to do things on the margins. Right, of it. Right. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it's. Um, I mean, I, I think I want to be clear here that uh, I, I I don't think that necessarily uh, the the best way to do things is to um, you know is, is to go straight for. For um, the jugular, yeah. the, the government yeah, yeah, yeah. legitimacy yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever it is, yeah. And, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. and then try to shoot that down. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I think we both know some people in common who, for some <laughs> reason or another, have decided to do that. And you know, quite apart from anything, um, <laughs> any repercussions to them personally, I think the broader question is: Is this really productive, right? Because you know, by and large, most Singaporeans um, support the elected government of the day. They might have a lot of yeah. rights for this and that, but the question of legitimacy of the government of the day is not in serious question yeah. for the vast yeah, yeah. Singapore. So is yeah, it really, you know, anyway, yeah, just right. right. But but I, I agree with you in uh, uh, almost everything you say. But don't don't you think, Prof, that the existence of those people also mm. I mean there's a place for them also because yeah, then yeah. other people become more moderate in because moderation and all is all relative. Yeah, I mean, I personally agree there's a place for them, but um, right. I think, um, yeah, it's also very hard for me, I think, to comment on whether specific actions taken against one, right. one person or another are actually understood. wrong. Like, right, because right, understood. By, by and large, yeah, anything yeah. that happened is, it is a result of the law being applied in a particular way. And I guess it comes back to the problem of if one doesn't agree with the law, one has to change the law. But if it is the law, then if it doesn't issue, right? I, know, I, I, I get what you mean. I get, yeah. yeah, I get what you mean. And also, we, can, we cannot also reach a stage where yeah. uh, everything is viewed co completely through partisan lines, mm. right? Like, yeah. oh, if the sky is blue, it's the PEP's fault, right? Also, we, we don't... I mean, that wouldn't be healthy also, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. we, yeah. we wouldn't want that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, so for you personally, right... Uh, uh, okay, by the way, this I, I'll save this for the last question. Mm -hmm. I just because this was a development today, so uh, I saw Ong Yikang's. So I haven't seen the an, an entire speech, I just saw news reports on it. Uh, and he basically said that, uh, Minister Ong, he said that uh, own, own self check, own self is a virtue, right? Uh, so do you have any comments on that? I guess you sort of see where he's coming from because he says if a government is able to check itself, then it shows that there are robust checks and balances within like you know civil servants you know mm -hmm. one one could argue for instance perm sex permanent secretaries right are as important or more important than ministers in some some cases right and if they can push back against ministers especially because they are subject matter experts right uh so probably he's talking about those kinds of things right uh uh but what what do you uh do you think it's is is that valid uh, or is that sufficient yeah. So, so I think um, in any organization, especially in any democracy, you always want to put effort, of course, into setting up, um, I guess you might say, inquisitorial or governance structures uh, that, that basically audit what you're doing, right? Uh, so, so, of course, there's nothing wrong with the idea that you have to check yourself. But at the same time, 
even after you check yourself, there's also, I, personally, I think, nothing wrong with the idea that it's valuable to also have entities which are more outside the system and especially not beholden in any way uh, to the powers that be to also continuing performing that function, right? So, you know, th this is another way of saying that just because a corporation, for example, has got a board of directors who ostensibly, you know, has some independent directors who check on the management. And the corporation also has got uh, regularly appointed auditors who check the accounts every year. Well, but such corporations can still have, for example, um, special auditors, right? They can have those things. Uh, such corporations can also be subject right. to uh, extra independent auditors, you know, so activist right. shareholders who nominate somebody who's completely unconnected to the current board who comes in there with the express purpose of trying to shake things up a bit and, you know, saying, look, are things really being done the best way they can? Uh, there's nothing inconsistent, right, about doing the best you can with internal governance processes, but also uh, not being hostile to external um, governance processes. And I think the issue here, I suppose, I would take with, uh, you know, with maybe with, with, with uh, the minister's approach to this, or maybe not the minister, I don't know, to single him out now, because he's just articulating to me, I think, a, a broader government philosophy. Right, right? Right, I think right. The broader thing I would take some issue with is that, um, you know, it's one thing to have internal processes that, that check on the government, but it's another thing to also not to be too hostile to external attempts to do so. And right, I, think, right. uh, I think one of the issues we do have is that from time to time, we are actually quite hostile uh, to external attempts to do so. And of course, right. you know, I mean, um, I think I, I want to be clear here that not all external attempts to, you might say, interrogate or criticize the government are benign, right? I mean, there are, in fact, some attempts which are not so benign. Uh, I don't want to raise the factor of quote-unquote foreign interference here, la, but I think we have to be <laughs> that not everything is benign, la, but still... Um, right. The question is, you know, um, yeah, does, does it actually warrant the level of um, suspicion, hostility, and so on that, that, right. you know, that some people have encountered and experienced? And I think that that's an open question. And personally, I think things could be dialed back a bit, la, I think. Right, right, absolutely. So not everything is benign. I think we must be real about that. But uh, not everything is should be viewed through the hostile lens as well, right? So, oh, yeah. yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So uh, there are a few questions here I wanted to, to take just perhaps quickly before we end. So uh, any thoughts on, in the same speech, Singapore arriving at a two-party system? Yeah, I think my, my broad response to that is um, two parties don't a democracy make, right? I mean... Right. Uh, Right. We look at any of uh, the other two-party systems globally, or even the multi-party democracies, and there's still a lot of things lacking, I, I think, about Absolutely. I mean, the fundamental nature of, of a democratic uh, contest, especially in parliament, right? Um, where, where you, um, I mean, where your elected re representatives uh, hold power, is that it's always going to be very challenging, I think, once you vote people into power, to make sure that they actually live up to their oaths, right, of service and actually conduct the government in a way which is in the public's interest. And that's why right. I think I don't want to leave it just up to the politicians or of, of the two parties, three parties, whatever it might be. Right. I also, that's why I also push for strengthening the other institutions like, because I think you, you need the combination of all these things. You can't just rely on two parties as the US, I think, right. a lot of people. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, two-party system, I think we, we must not uh, think that it's a panacea, right? I mean, Lisa Dutz, uh, she uh, wrote a book called uh, The Tyranny of the Two-Party System, right? Uh, and how, I mean, I mean, this was before 2016, of course, you know, where the, where the two parties have basically dominated 
the entire space and there's not enough room for alternative voices as well right so so i mean we we must be realistic about that as well so uh uh so would an ombudsman uh work oh then that is a concept i i don't know much about i mean i, I it has been uh, highlighted to me before um so so just this, this is the idea that you would have this um special appointee or person to whom you could actually um report certain matters or right. and so on and then they would be empowered to in investigate it and so right. on right yeah, yeah. um hmm. yeah so so i think it's not an uninteresting concept uh in in, in some ways though i i would suggest um some of the institutions that we already have which are independent of the the, the executive and the legislature uh such as the, the judiciary are already meant to do this in part right i mean that's the whole idea behind you know concepts like judicial review where if there is a decision the government has made which uh somebody feels is, is clearly uh you know unconstitutional or exceeds the boundaries of uh, executive power then that can be brought to uh you know the court i mean the, the problem of course is that everybody also recognizes that bringing a proper case on this is very expensive right i mean not right. just lawyers fees but also in terms of uh what the aggrieved member of the public would have to do in order to get anything done right. so i think the ombudsman idea in some sense um the reason why is i think it has some appeal is that people imagine that the process would somehow be more straightforward and, and simpler than bringing it through the legal system but that is something i i honestly i don't know much about i mean i think right, right. how uh such a system does operate in other places where where uh it exists and to think a bit carefully about what is it good at versus what is the judicial system good at versus finally what is the um what is the political the electoral system good at right uh right. you know because here i'm thinking of what uh, i think minister uh shanmugam once said you know in the context of posma right so you know he was making the whole argument that at the end of the day if the public doesn't agree uh with the decisions that the minister is making uh using the minister's discretion against posma and if the public also feels that the judiciary or the challenges uh, made against those decisions uh do not bear the results that you know that the people feel is right with the popular will then the public can go and vote the minister yeah. for saying right, that right. And of course, you know, I mean, I, I think he said that with the awareness and knowledge that the public was not exactly going to vote every single minister out just because right. they disagreed with one or two popular decisions. Right, 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 right. You know, he right, brought right, the point. Right. Yeah, brought the point is some decisions need to be contested through the political process, some through the right. legal process. You know, so where does right. the ombudsman fill in uh, there? I think it's a question. Yeah. Right, right, right. Oh, absolutely. So the devil is in the details, right? So one, one question from Shout for Joy. What just briefly? What do you think, as an academic yourself? What do you think about uh minister maliki's uh response in parliament recent response in parliament about mm. academic freedom okay so i think so i mean uh minister maliki himself is is a former academic and probably can still return to nus if he wants so um okay my my and, and i i also gave a talk on this by the way uh, at the invitation of the folks uh who who did the academic freedom survey and my sense of it um okay like i don't know whether this will answer the question directly right but um I guess for me the way I think about it is what's the broader role of uh, of the state in defining academic freedom okay so there are some people who take a very um I think strong position that uh, academic freedom means that academics themselves should decide uh and determine all of their affairs in the interest of society right uh and I think there is 
merit to that view, but I also think that there is merit to the view that other stakeholders should also have a say in this. And the other stakeholders will include the public as well as the state, right? And the reason for this is, at the end of the day, um, the argument for academic freedom is that by giving academics some measure of, the, of, of freedom to say uh, what they want and teach and uh, do research on what they want, right? Then this is a process that allows society to arrive at a better version of the truth. Right. Better version of the truth because one of the right. things we do in academia is always find out new truths that may right. hold right. understandings. Okay, small now, T, small yeah. T, not capital T. <laughs> yeah. The problem is how do you decide what you should be working on? The, the reality is uh, many academic disciplines and circles are actually very constrained by the thinking of a very small number of influential members of the profession. They're the ones who are the senior professors, the gatekeepers in the profession. They're actually the ones who decide at the end of the day what really is academic freedom. Because you could say, look, I have the academic freedom to do research on this topic. But if your research is not accepted by the, stake, by the gatekeepers in the discipline, right. Freedom is meaningless because you cannot keep your job. That's the problem. Right, right, right. So, right, so in, right. My, in, my, in my broader conception of this, I think the state and other stakeholders do have some say in this. But at the same time, I also reject, I think, the proposition that the state's influence should be so large to the extent that the state alone gets to decide this is good research, this is bad research, you know, and, and, and to hand out promotions, discipline, and so on accordingly. So that, that concept I reject. But I also... You know, don't I also don't take the view that uh, the moment the minister or whoever comes to the university should say no, I can't listen to you. You know, I mean, I, I don't take that view, lah. Okay, so so to go to some of the more practical issues, I think in um, this whole concept of academic freedom in Singapore, um, I think by and large, you can research a lot of controversial and sensitive things in Singapore, uh, but I think it is also true that if you want to do research that, uh, you know, that might question, for example, government policy, legitim legitimacy and things of that sort, right? Then you got to be pretty sure that what you're doing is correct la, from the academic point of view, you know? I, th I think that's what you have to bear in mind. And you also have to bear in mind that doing research that I think comports with the views of the powers that be. And this would be true no matter whether it's the minister's view or whether it's the senior professor's view, right? My view is that doing research at the courts with those, with the views of powers that be, is always easier to do, okay? Because even if you do like sloppy half-ass research there, if it's in accordance with the powers that be, everybody, right? They're going to, they're going to clap you in the back and say, this is great. <laughs> okay, come on, I mean, this is the reality. So, uh, so I think we have to recognize that the incentives are against people exercising their academic freedom to do research on certain critical topics simply because everybody is aware things need to be really, really accurate, you know, and really well researched. Whereas the bar is lower, you know, when, when you're just kind of like doing stuff, stuff that parrots what people already think. La. But, but this is the burden right. all researchers uh, uh, bear, okay? I mean, I just want to be clear on this. Even if there was no government, uh, you know, influence here right. at all, Researchers bear the burden, and every time you want to challenge your orthodoxy, you you got to be prepared for an uphold, uh, uphill uphill right. So yeah, you you have to believe in it. Is my point, right. Yeah. Whether doing. it's political or disciplinary orthodoxy, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, right. Okay. Thank you for that. I just I just uh, to add on. I think as long as Tetare we've only allowed is allowed to exist, it it shows that there's some academic freedom. <laughs> oh, we are allowed to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So. Final question, biggest regret and biggest achievement 
in uh-huh. politics. In politics, not in life, okay? In politics. I don't know how exciting this, this uh, answer is, but, but okay, you know, I, I think originally, um, maybe I won't answer about whether I have achievement or regret, but just a bit about, about my thinking process in the matter. When, when I, you know, uh, when I filled in those forms for the nomination, went through the selection process and so on, um, I, the reason why I, I was doing it was I thought, okay, I could contribute as an academic maybe to policy debates in parliament. And, and what I was concerned about at the time uh, is that I felt that in a lot of the discussions we were having, maybe not so much in parliament, but certainly everywhere else, lah, you know, there was a lot of growing disregard, I think, for facts, for reason arguments, for critical thinking on policy matters. And I think these were fundamental problems to, to our democracy. I mean, the fundamental problems to democracy anywhere. Okay. Uh, and so I thought it would be useful as an academic if I could maybe uh, try to, um, I guess, show people what, were, what are some academic thinking, what are some research, what are some evidence on some of these matters that we were interested in. Uh, and these would be useful non-partisan, hopefully, views to be articulated. Right. Okay? But at the same time, I came to realize, I think from being parliament in a while, that it's very difficult to fit, I think, in, into a parliamentary democracy if you're a non-partisan, singular MP. Okay, In any way, right. it makes impact. Uh, because the reality is um, you, you don't control the agenda, right? Um, so the so way I think about this is this. Look, Parliament's kind of like a moving train, okay? So, you know, when, when you elect a parliament or a government, they have an agenda in mind, which, which you know, hopefully they have uh, sold the public on, which is why they got elected, right? And, you know, um, ostensibly, the MPs control parliament because you need their votes to get legislation passed. But in reality, in every uh, Westminster legislature, it's a small group of MPs who happen to be the senior members of the party, the executive, right, the, the government minister. Right. They're the ones who control where the parliament train is going, okay? And individual MPs cannot do anything to stop or redirect the train. What the MPs end up doing is they just decide, look, if the train is at this station, do I get on and get off, right? Uh, when the conductor is in front of me, that's the minister, do I tell the conductor, hey, you know, uh, I think we should be doing this instead or, you know, and so on. But, but really, you don't get to say, like, I mean, on paper, you say you need all the votes in order to pass. I mean, you need at least 50, 50% of the votes to pass legislation. But in reality, it feels a lot more that all you're doing on a day-to-day basis in parliament is looking at where the government wants to point the train and just deciding for this particular stop, am I staying I'm on board or am I just keeping quiet? That, that's really what you're doing in a day-to-day basis. But the battle is not there, right? The battle yeah. is in the yeah. court of public opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. you're right. Yeah. So that's the, right, that's the right. thing I came to realize, right? I came to realize after being a bit dispirited in, in this for a while that actually... Uh, it's not even about talking to the conductor or the train driver. <laughs> what you're really doing is you're shouting very loudly so that everybody can hear. Right. Hey, I think the driver should be doing this because of these reasons. And in the end, what the driver does is he or she looks around and he says, oh, you know, I don't have to listen to this MP actually, but uh, those guys behind the MP, they're starting to look a bit unhappy, a bit discomforted by what you're saying. So maybe I need to listen to them. And that's really, I think, the, the value of parliamentary debate, right? It's, it's not about changing the minds, I think, of any other MP or the ministers or anybody like that. It's about putting a view out there that changes public opinion. But this is something that I think um, is, I, didn't, I wasn't really aware of, I think, uh, before I was an NMP. Right. And even today, I think uh, most governments try to, I think, maintain the, the gentle fiction that the whole idea of parliament is to debate an idea to have parliament decide based on right. 
it. Whereas the reality is, it's about right. views for the public to judge on. And eventually, if the public is unconvinced by a certain argument the government is bringing forth, the government will be forced to change its mind because it cannot actually hold the public anymore at that point. I think that's a lesson in politics, like right there, right? Uh, and understanding parliament. Yeah, I, I, thank you. Thank but you for that. Start, you know, that's my point. It took me a long time to get this. Right, 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 right. No, but thank you. I mean, that's the practitioner's uh, view, right? Uh, so I really appreciate that. So this one is the final. Let's end off on a light hearted, non partisan uh, <laughs> uh, uh, manner. So uh, who is your favorite PAP MP and who is your favorite opposition uh, MP? Cannot say, yeah, cannot say, yeah, cannot say SM Taman. No, I, I, I don't answer that. Come on. Oh, really? I don't know. Maybe you work yeah, yeah. with somebody. Well, okay, okay. <laughs> Okay, okay, it's okay. <laughs> I give a non-partisan one each, you know. But okay, okay, it's fine, it's fine. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. a beefy thing, which is that generally, <laughs> I, I mean, my, my, my feeling has always been that, that MPs from both sides have always tried to do their duty the best way they felt, okay? The, the way they felt that there was... Best That's so, so I mean, PC. The, no, no, yeah. it's, it's PC, but... No, <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but the reason why I say that is, you know, I think it's very easy to be, how to say, uh, to be cynical, right? It's very, yeah, easy. Yeah, yeah. oh, you know, yeah, yeah. these guys are only in it for their own personal gain or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the reality is, uh, you know, politicians go through a lot of shit, man. I mean, oh, for sure, for sure. Politicians for sure. very long, but just the amount of, uh, I mean, look, you say something and you get hit in your social media feed and so on. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very dispiriting. And, and in fact, if you're an elected politician, especially if you're a government one, then you also have to deal with the fact that a lot of the people telling you stuff are just doing so for, for their own selfish gain, right? You no yeah. longer know who are your real friends. I mean, come on, that, that's a real Yeah, problem. yeah, yeah, exactly. So exactly. Like, yeah, so I wouldn't want to be a, a politician necessarily. Uh, but I'm no, just... I you have to put up with a lot. I think, one. I think politicians only know who their real friends are once they retire, once they yeah, don't have power, exactly. right? Yeah, Yeah, because people surround you maybe because of your position more than because of the person, right? So, yeah. I, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, thank you so much, Professor Tassara. Sorry we went over one hour, <laughs> but it was really a fascinating conversation and clearly you're an extremely intelligent person. I wish that you, uh, you had... Uh, uh, done another term together with Anthea as well but I mean I think one of the things I will always be grateful to you for is your your stand on POFMA uh, and it wasn't an easy stand and I always feel like NMPs confer a degree of legitimacy on any vote mm -hmm. that that no other person can not not the elected or the NCMP so so thank you for that yeah and thank you everyone good night and all uh, all the videos will be uploaded on YouTube and I really hate to do this but Steffi asked me to, so please like and subscribe. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you so much, Prof. Okay. See you. For bye having bye. Me. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs>